Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Michael Suarez. I have the great privilege of being the director of Rare Book School and of introducing our speaker today. My history with Rare Book School and Matt Kirschenbaum goes back much farther than Matt knows. Um, it goes back farther than before Matt and I ever met. It goes back farther than when I called him and asked him if he would come teach at Rare Book School. Um, in fact, when I came to the University of Virginia to interview for this job that I currently hold, I spent uh, no fewer than six hours with the committee in a series of conversations. There were also visits I had to run the Danielle Culpepper Barbara Heritage gauntlet. Um, I had to, had to spend time speaking with Karn Wittenborg and various deans and sub-deans and sub-sub-deans and all the rest. But the long conversation was with the committee. And at one point they said, so, would you add any courses at Rare Book School? And I said, oh, yes. And they said, well, who are some of the faculty that you would like to bring in? And the first name on my list was Matt Kirschenbaum. And they said, so you know him, eh? And I said, never met the dude in my life. <laughs> they laughed and they said, ha, 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 you're old friends, right? And I said, never met the dude in my life. Now they thought I probably had some kind of psychiatric problem because I waxed eloquently, or at least tried to, about his merits. And then they said, well, what do you mean you don't know him? And I said, I've never met the guy, but I read everything he writes. And they said, oh, really? But he's a digital guy. And I said, well, yeah, but he's more than that. A good example of how Matt Kirschenbaum is more than that, and I recommend it to you, is Play the Past, a group blog that he can, he's a principal contributor to, along with Steve Jones and a few other people. This is him, really. And this is really about the cultural history of digital games. This is really about understanding what the changing technology, I won't even say evolving, I'll just say changing technology in games teaches us about the societies that, that play the games and that created the games. You want to know what's going on in uh, Matt's world, read his WordPress website as I do sedulously. Look at his Tumblr feed because there is great stuff going on there as well. Um, it is true that he is Associate Professor of English at the University of Maryland in College Park and the Associate Director of Myth. Uh, it is true that he's a 2011 Guggenheim Fellow. Um, it is true that he wrote the first digital dissertation at the University of Virginia and probably the second in the whole United States of America. Um, it is true that his first book, Mechanisms, won the Richard J. Finneran Award from the Society for Textual Scholarship. 
that it won the George Dean and Jean S. DeLong Prize from the Society for the History of Authorship, Reading, and Publishing, Sharp. It is true that it won the 16th annual MLA Prize for a first book in the entire broad field encompassed by the MLA. It is true that he was the principal investigator for the NEH-funded project Approaches to Managing and Collecting Born Digital Library Materials for Scholarly Use. It is true that he was the main player in the IMLS project devoted to preserving virtual worlds. It is true that he's one of the three authors along with the extremely distinguished Richard Ovenden, the university librarian of Oxford University, who will be joining the Rare Book School faculty in 2016. Yes, that's a commercial message. Uh, of digital forensics and born digital content in cultural heritage collections, a report that has set the agenda um, very, very widely. It is true that the dude writes for Slate. All these things are true, but they do not begin to encompass Matt's playfulness, his intellectual humility, his care for his students, his sense of colleagueship. And this is, I think, what makes him a really great humanist for our time. Somebody who is unafraid of the digital domain, somebody who is appropriately playful about the literary world, somebody who cares deeply about the humanities and also devotes his attention to getting the highest scores he can on games that he played as a child. <laughs> it's a real pleasure for me to introduce Matt to you because I'm really excited about his work on the history of word processing and we're going to be deeply privileged to uh, get a chapter of it today. Matt Kirschenbaum. Thank you, thank you, Michael, so much. And I'm really um, excited to have the chance. I know this is uh, this is Hump Day at RBS, and so uh, it's the the end of a very long Wednesday. Um, for all of us, but I'm really excited to, to have the chance to do this, in particular because for some of you I know heard an earlier version of this in New York City back last winter on, as I recall, a very, very cold January day. And um, as is the nature of things, there is actually uh, breaking news in the form of uh, new research. Um, one thing that's happened in the Updike world is Adam Begley's biography has been uh, published since. And I've also had an opportunity to make a return visit to the, the Houghton. And so um, you'll be uh, hearing about that tonight. Um, by the way, um, my, my Fitbit is telling me that I still need a few thousand more steps for the day. So if it's OK with you all, I'm just going to be pacing back and forth as I speak. Is that OK? 
So I'm going to begin by um, sharing a, a bit of verse that, that comes to us from Mr. Mr. Updike. We word processor, is it not de trop of you to put a dot between the words your nimble screen displays in phosphorescent green? Your cursor, tiny blinking sun, stands ready to erase or run at my command to execute or cancel. Which, the choices moot, so flummoxed are my circuits, met this way by your adroiter set, I cannot think your wizardry has by some error canceled me. <laughs> Updike wrote this poem, which he titled Invalid Keystroke, in March of 1983. I first discovered it in, not in the pages of The New Yorker, nor in a collected poems, for it is uncollected, but rather in the, the reading room of the Houghton Library, where it exists in five typescript drafts, uh, one of them heavily annotated. Updike did indeed send it to the New Yorker, which of course was his regular publication venue, but it was rejected. The letter signed by Howard Moss and dated March 24, 1983, reads in part, though God knows this is timely, something kept us from taking it. I'm not sure what. <laughs> The poem was published a year later in an annual of light verse edited by Robert Wallace. Updike actually reproduces some lines from it in his preface to a 1991 collection of essays entitled Odd Jobs, and to the best of my knowledge, it has not resurfaced since. So I had gone to the Hoden, which is of course where Updike's papers are kept, with a, a two-part question. What was his first computer, and exactly when did he start using it? This detail of the writer's life was not recorded in, my, in any published source I had yet seen. In the aforementioned preface, Updike mentions having acquired a computer, quote, not long after compiling a previous collection, Hugging the Shore, um, in 1983, but though he found it, quote, a writing instrument so dazzling that he composed the poem he, he called invalid keystroke to it, on it, as he put it. He does not see fit to make mention of which brand or model it was. The contained within my questions about Updike's uh, computer are at least two others that form the substance of my address today. How should we find out such a thing given that the man himself is now gone and why does it matter? And to these, I would like to add a third for our consideration. What does it mean to think about such questions, not just as biographical, but as bibliographical questions? That is, to ask them with the presumption that by answering them, we will illuminate some aspect of the composition, dissemination, and reception of the writer's texts. I hope such questions strike you as worthwhile. For the last three years I've been collecting what we know about writers and their computers as part of my ongoing research in the literary history of word processing. Though not all writers use a computer even today, uh, many do, including some such as Michael Andace and J.K. Rowling, who are routinely celebrated for allegedly not doing so. Yet there's no systematic way of recovering the technical specifics of their systems even though such details will be vital for future preservation as well as, I believe, future scholarship. 
Sometimes the answer is easy to find, as the author, him or herself, will have a definitive statement on record. Um, Isaac Asimov, for example, tells us that a Radio Shack TRS-80 Model 2, much like this one, accompanied by a Daisy Wheel printer and the Scripsit software, arrived at his 33rd floor New York City apartment on May 6, 1981, at the behest of the editors of Byte magazine, who had commissioned him to write a series of articles about his first time using a computer. Um, in other cases, there's clear documentary evidence. We know from his financial records that Ralph Ellison bought an Osborne One, much like this one, on January 8th, 1982. Uh, some blame his subsequent failure to finish his long-awaited second novel on the transition to word processing. We know from his letters and email that Charles Bukowski got a Macintosh and a laser printer for Christmas in 1990. His already prodigious productivity soared. And yes, there are digital indicators too. Salman Rushdie has said that the first novel he wrote on a computer was The Moor's Last Sigh, and the earliest digital files associated with that book in his electronic records that are part of his papers at Emory University are date and time stamped April 20th, 1992, at 11.58 in the morning, if you were wondering. But just as often I found, the answer must be arrived at deductively by triangulating published statements from the author, uh, checking them against relevant product histories, and when the opportunity arises, through archival research in the author's papers, which, as the example of Rushdie demonstrates, can also now include digital records. When I describe my project, people tend to assume that it is stylistic. They ask questions about whether word processors have made their favorite author's writing better or worse, uh, whether it made their sentences longer or shorter, their vocabulary richer or poorer, and so forth. Uh, these were questions of genuine concern to the literati. The idea of literature, Gore Vidal solemnly declared in the New York Review of Books in 1984, is, quote, being erased by the word processor. But my project is not stylistic. It is historical and ultimately bibliographical, having to do with our knowledge of the material histories and transmission of texts. Despite being an integral part of the production of literature for some 30 to 40 years now, computers have not yet been the subject of much serious literary history, let alone actual bibliography. Uh, there are exceptions, of course, and I would single out Alan Galley's recent work in particular. But authors and their typewriters have long been an irresistible topic to scholars and to the, the public at large. Uh, Richard Polt's classic typewriter page on the web includes an extensive list of machines associated with a wide variety of different writers. Steve Soboroff's collection of typewriters belonging to John Lennon, the Unabomber, and yes, Updike, regularly tours and is exhibited. Uh, computers, by contrast, are rarely treated as numinous objects in this regard, though there too have been exceptions, such as Peter Carey's iBook, uh, reportedly under glass at the State Library of Melbourne. Likewise, serious textual scholarship has been done using typewritten documents, including, of course, Lawrence Rainey's work to date the composition of the wasteland. Hannah Sullivan, in her recent book, The Work of Revision, sees the typewriter as central to high modernism's poetics of revision. 
as a commonplace of literary history, we know that the first typewritten manuscript submitted to a publisher was Mark Twain's Life on the Mississippi. Uh, the book was published in 1882, and it was composed on his Remington number two. What was the first novel written with a word processor? The answer has not been commonly known, though I have published my candidate. Um, you can read about this. Uh, this is a piece that was in Slate. Uh, that is Len Dayton, um, and he wrote a novel called Bomber that was published in 1970 uh, with his personal assistant, Eleanor Handley, working the machine in the foreground uh, that's called a magnetic tape selectric typewriter. It was the first pr product brought to market by IBM and branded as a word processor. Could a bibliographical operation such as Rainey's have been posited, let alone resolved, had Eliot been writing on a succession of Mac power books instead of manual typewriters? The answer is yes, but as with any true bibliographical question, not without some specialized tools and the training to use them correctly. How then can we ascertain relevant facts of a writer's computing history and avoid too many invalid keystrokes of our own. Let us start by coming back to Updike's lines, and here, once again, are the drafts. And by the way, I also want to um, thank the, the Houghton Library, which both um, has been very welcoming and accommodating to me, and has given me permission to um, display these images, um, share them with you um, tonight. And here is what the text looks like as printed in Wallace's collection. What kind of technical specs might we extract from this tetrometer poetic apostrophe? First, we're told that the monitor displays its text in green. Uh, this is technically known as P1 phosphor, and it was extremely common. Amber and white were also used for monochrome displays. And second, of course, there is the fact of the dot in the spaces between each word, Finally, there's the reference to a series of seemingly generic commands like execute and cancel, as well as the title of the poem, which is typographically rendered as an error message itself, invalid keystroke. Of these, the most interesting to me is the dot between the words. Displaying a dot between words as a screen feature characteristic of several early word processing systems uh, but I'm sure many in this particular audience also realize that it is, in fact, a much older convention. Um, here we see um, a piece of Trajan's column, a reproduction of which hangs in the, the basement at, down in Alderman Library. Um, this is properly known as an interpunct, and Paul Sanger, in his authoritative space between words, tells us that it was commonplace in the ancient world prior to the introduction of vowels into the Phoenician alphabet, and nor am I the first to make the connection between scriptura continua and word processing. Nicholson Baker, in an essay on punctuation, notes specifically that it was revived by Wang in the 1980s. Wang incidentally employed green monochrome for its displays, and a check of some old manuals reveals both execute and cancel as, in fact, legitimate commands. In fact, they were both actual keys on the keyboard. But there's also a typographic subtlety that we must take note of. In the poem as printed, and indeed in the typescripts at the Hoden as well, the dot does not float midway between the top and bottom of the line as it did when displayed in phosphorescent green upon John Updike's nimble screen. 
Rather, it is printed at the bottom of the line as an ordinary period. The center dot would have been present on Updike's display as a formatting code, much like tab symbols and hard returns and other such marks, but these were never actually output to the printer, and there was no easier, obvious way to do it, uh, particularly not for a novice user such as um, Updike. What we see evidence then is of Updike substituting an approximation of a special formatting code with what we would term character data, that is an ordinary punctuation mark. As we've noted, the typescripts are dated March of 1983, the same year Adam Begley in his recent biography describes as, quote, the pinnacle of Updike's literary career. Just one year before that, incidentally, Updike had been quoted on the subject of word processing in Time magazine saying, I am not persuaded that the expense and time it takes to learn the machine would be worth it. I'll stick to my manual as I have for 20 years. Uh, but clearly his thinking changed, as it did for many writers at about this time, and there's no doubt that his imagination was fired by the sudden presence of the new machine in his workspace. In the course of playing with the poem's lines and draft, Updike gives himself free reign. Initially, for example, he has this. The mind is just a set of sparks composed inscrutably of quarks. And so are you, you dazzling thing. I touch S-I-N-G, you sing. Besides the comparison between the human mind and electronic brain, which is in fact a theme to which he would shortly return in the novel Rogers version, which is about artificial intelligence, we see a not unclever bit of self-referential textual play, further expanding the variety of typographically driven effects in the poem. Evidence of writers test driving their first word processor are in fact a, a minor genre in their personal papers. Uh, one of the best known examples comes to us from Russell Banks um, when he was writing the novel that became Affliction. Uh, his papers are at the Ransom Center, still very much learning to think on this machine he wrote at the beginning of a document that is a kind of stream of consciousness uh, reflection, rendition of its capabilities. But we're still not done with the drops. On the back side of the one he annotated by hand, we, we find this. Now, Updike, you should understand, reused everything. He's, he was known to write in the empty space of a retail store receipt. Um, this page selected almost at random from his papers is, is merely representative. Um, he reused paper for both manuscript and typescript, filling both recto and versal. verso. Here we see what appears to be a file listing of some sort, obviously dumped direct from screen to the page. Uh, you'll note, of course, the names Malamud and Hone. As it happens, Bernard Malamud's last novel, God's Grace, published in 1982, features a protagonist named Calvin Cohn, you can imagine my delight at this discovery. Clearly, not only was Updike using a word processor, so too was Bernard Malamud, and here we see Updike, frugal Yankee that he was, recycling some bit of hard copy he had gotten hold of. The, the two did correspond, uh, but originating on Malamud's own machine. But no, this was not the case. Um, Updike, in fact, had written a review of Malamud's novel published in the, the New Yorker in November of the previous year. So what I had here then was an index to one of Updike's own diskettes and an apparent record 
of a second text he composed on the word processor, uh, perhaps indeed as much as six months earlier. This file listing was of immediate importance to me for another reason, though, for in the sparse particulars of its syntax and semantics, uh, notably the telling reference to the disk as an archive, I had at last the skeleton key to the actual system that had been used to produce it. Uh, From there, it was just a quick bit of Googling, which turned up a nice quality PDF of the original machine's manual uh, for me to, to confirm. So I had answered my basic questions. I knew with some precision when Updike had gotten his first computer, and I knew what it was. Indeed, it was a Wang, the same brand owned by another New England writer north of Boston, Stephen King. Uh, King, in fact, wrote an entire short story, The Word Processor of the Gods, based on his experience with the machine. Uh, He had purchased it to co-author The Talisman with Peter Straub, Um, The word processor of the gods, which was just the word processor, as it's called here, it was published in Playboy, um, and there you see a copy that I bought for research, Um, (laughs) republished as the word processor of the gods in uh, the collection Skeleton Crew. This is the first fictional treatment of word processing of which I am aware. But... To come back to Updike, it was only through a combination of fact-checking, serendipity, and conjecture that I was able to confirm these details about Updike's system. Um, This photograph, incidentally, um, surfaced only in the last couple of months. It's by a photographer named Nancy Crampton. Uh, It was previously unpublished, she tells me. Uh, The New York Review of Books, when they were reviewing the Begley biography, asked her for a photograph. Uh, She sent them this one. Um, the Wang would be identifiable from the photograph. It's a really good example of just the unpredictability of the ways in which this kind of knowledge comes to us. Um, Surely, however, particular knowledge about a writer's computer is more than just a species of author worship, like asking what color the great man's favorite cardigan was. But I would have, I've subsequently come across only one place in Updike's writings where he makes reference to the Wang by name as opposed to just referring generically to a computer or a word processor. And it's not as if we don't know quite a lot about how Updike otherwise wrote. In one extended passage, he characterizes his word processor, a term he quips that describes me as well, as the last in a succession of writing instruments that originated with crayons and colored pencils. We know that Updike owned a series of typewriters, first manual and then electric, before the Wang arrived. Later, he would migrate to um, an IBM computer. But it would be a mistake to interpret this genealogy of machines as merely progressive. Instead, they coexisted, literally side by side in his office, with different tasks associated with each, Uh, He described the scene for Jill Clements, um, another well-known literary photographer who also took this photograph. An oak desk I bought at Furniture and Parts in Boston 20 years ago is, along with a metal typing table and an old manual Olivetti, where I answer letters and talk on the phone. An olive drab steel desk, a piece of retired army equipment brought over 30 years ago in Ipswich, is where I write by hand when the fragility of the project 
a poem, the start of a novel, demands that I sneak up on it with that humblest and quietest of weapons, a pencil. The third desk veneered in white formica holds the word processor where everything gets typed up and where many items are composed. Um, an interesting bit of detail there, we know that he did write invalid keystroke on the Wang word processor, which by that statement is a departure from his usual practice in composing poetry. These casual details orient us towards what is in fact a very complex textual condition, with texts originating in various media and migrating back and forth between them in the course of their revision, longhand and typescript, hard copy and disc. The point, of course, is not that Updike is in any way remarkable in this respect, but rather that he is typical. Uh, just think about your own individual writing habits. D.F. McKenzie himself anticipated precisely this situation as early as 1985 in the Panizzi lectures when he explicitly included electronic files within the purview of bibliography and textual studies, yet Updike's study is also very different from the early 18th century scenes Mackenzie so painstakingly reconstructed, and I don't just mean in the obvious sense of their technological novelty, here we inhabit the office, not the shop. And the nature of contemporary office work and the writing instruments that attend it is such that production is part and parcel of consumption, or sorry, composition. The casual reference to answering letters at the typewriter and the word processor as the place where everything gets typed up speaks to a blurring of boundaries between the author as composer of texts and the author as a compositor of them. Uh, before long, we would call this desktop publishing. By now, you will have intuited that it is when text transitions between multiple information states, from digital file to hard copy output, for example, that it tends to produce what we might recognize as bibliographical knowledge. Similarly, a number of years ago, John Lobanino wrote a short paper investigating the implications of character encoding problems, uh, the sort of glitz and gibberish you sometimes get on your screen in an email or your web browser. Uh, we now call this Mojibake. Um, John Lobanino explored briefly uh, the potential of such uh, glitches for the bibliographical identification of the originating computer. Learning to identify and leverage these transition and translation points are critical to, the, to an analytical and descriptive bibliography of foreign digital texts since they are where the materiality of underlying systems and infrastructure become manifest. Thus far today, we focused on evidence derived from the transition to paper. Uh, this is a key point because it is one of because if one is able to locate traces of an author's computer environment, even in hard copy as we've done here, um, and another way to do this is by successfully uh, distinguishing output from a printer as opposed to a true typescript. Um, if we can do this, then we can surmise the existence of corresponding uh, digital storage media. So what then about Updike's born digital materials? What can they tell us about the writing's transition from screen or more properly RAM memory to long-term storage? 
Wang Systems used a variety of storage technologies over the years, ranging from cassette tapes to 8-inch and 5 and a quarter inch floppies um, to early hard drives, which were known as Winchester drives. Updike would have used 5 and a quarter inch floppies. How can we be sure? Wang machines ran an operating system known as OIS, or the Office Information System, uh, which was similar to the more commonly known DOS. Um, OIS used one byte to store a single character. Um, so if we return to the print dump from Malam the Malamud disk's directory listing, uh, we can do a bit of arithmetic. Note that the single file on the disk cone is five pages. Note that there are 70 pages remaining for a total storage capacity of 75 pages per disk. <clears throat> In OIS parlance, a page refers not to the physical page as printed. The, the number of lines could in fact vary and was controlled by the user, uh, but rather to the screen display whose configuration was 80 by 24 lines. Multiplying 80 by 24 tells us that we have 1,920 characters per page. Multiplying 1,920 by 75 tells us that each disk is capable of storing 144,000 characters or bytes, or 140 kilobytes, which is indeed the standard storage capacity for a double density 5 and a quarter inch floppy. Now, the Hoden has some 53 and a half inch disks from a later phase of Updike's career, but unfortunately no five and a quarter inch floppies um, other than a handful of installation disks for Lotus AmiPro, uh, the Windows word processor that Updike favored after he moved on from the Wang. <clears throat> At least until such time as these older diskettes may be located, bibliographical investigation of any of Updike's digital files from this era will be impossible. Nonetheless, we can gain some insight into what might be possible through the Hoden's archival processing of the extant three and a half inch disks, an undertaking that I had the privilege of facilitating uh, during a site visit in May as part of my work with the BitCurator project. The visual examination of the media is the, um, so there, there we are in the, um, the basement of the Houghton, and um, you can see um, the diskettes that you see over towards the right. Um, those are the, the Updike diskettes. Um, visual examination of the media is the first step, since there are things to be learned from the appearance of any material artifact, even a computer disk. Um, here, too, we see Updike's habits, the density of written information on the labels, presumably reflecting his desire to make full use of the actual storage capacity of each of the individual diskettes. Some will want to know whether the magnetic recording media itself will have deteriorated and degraded beyond the point of any practical hope of data recovery. Uh, there is ongoing research into this area, sometimes referred to as bit rot, but suffice to say that recoveries from floppies dating from the early 1990s are fairly routine, and while there can certainly be problems, if the disks have been kept in reasonable storage conditions, there would be reason to be optimistic. In any case, the procedure for both the absent five and a quarter inch Wang disks, as well as the three and a half inch disks that the Houghton does have is the same. Uh, to obtain what is known as a forensic disk image from the original media. 
Now, a disk image is a virtual surrogate of every single bit of information recorded on the physical disk in question. It is a perfect duplicate insofar as it bypasses the file system and other high-level data structures and simply treats the magnetic signals on the surface of the disk as one long string or stream of ones and zeros regardless of whether or not they are associated with an intact file or not. Such bit streams are routinely obtained from digital devices seized in the course of criminal investigation, and because they can be mathematically authenticated to approximately 100 times the accuracy of DNA sampling, they are legally admissible in a court of law. So these tasks are performed with the BitCurator environment, which I mentioned a moment ago, an open source digital forensics uh, system that my team at Maryland has been developing with the School of Information and Library Science at Chapel Hill. I'm not going to go into the particulars of BitCurator with you uh, tonight. My students have already gotten a, a heavy dose. Um, but I do wish to share some of what I observed during the processing se session last month and again, I emphasize that we're dealing with a later portion now of Updike's career. Uh, he had shifted to a Windows-compatible machine by the early 1990s, and indeed Wang itself uh, filed for bankruptcy in 1992. So the material on the disks consists of his fiction, essays, reviews, correspondence, and in one instance, in one instance at least, some apparently uh, family-related materials. The Hoden does not have any hard drives, and indeed Updike himself was something of a Luddite. Um, he only rarely browsed the web and never used email. But we can get some real appreciation for his work habits from the discs, including on such later novels as Villages, 2004, Terrorist, 2006, and The Widows of Eastwick, 2009, the, the sequel to the more famous Witches. The fact that Updike was in the habit of reusing his uh, disks makes them particularly appealing candidates for forensic examination since there is the promise of temporary or deleted files to recover. Um, these are visible here. Um, we're seeing some output from BitCurator. Uh, these are visible here by the underscore prefix and the .tmp suffix. One obvious initial task, then, is to reconcile the file listings we obtain through BitCurator with the labeling on the diskettes themselves. Uh, this diskette strikes me as particularly interesting. Note the final item, the full glass, written in an obviously different ink. Examining the diskette with BitCurator, um, these are, by the way, literally screenshots in that I photographed the, the screen with my camera, um, examining the diskette with BitCurator, um, we find several deleted files, again as indicated by the underscore character. Uh, the .sam prefix, meanwhile, denotes files created with Lotus AmiPro, the word processor Updike favored after the, the Wang. The full glass, however, you'll note, is a .doc file created with Microsoft Word. Moreover, the date and timestamps tell us it was added to the disk some five years after the other content. Uh, consistent with the difference in labeling. Uh, finally, you may note traces of an, of an Apple um, file system on the diskette, the .trashes file, and the Apple formatting present in two additional deleted files at the bottom. 
While the exact scenario here awaits reconstruction, this sort of evidence suggests that Updike was using Microsoft Word by the time he wrote The Full Glass. Uh, it's a nonfiction piece, autobiographical, uh, published near the end of his life in The New Yorker in May of 2008. Um, at some point, the diskette, which um, was by then at least five years old, was inserted into a system, um, a Macintosh system, uh, whether by Updike or another individual, we, we do not know. Now, divining this sort of information can have its own satisfactions, uh, but it's also vital for the next step we would want to take with these files, which is to examine their content. Because all digital information is ultimately encoded in ubiquitous ones and zeros, the only way to make sense of it, by which I mean actually opening the files, is to apply the correct decoding schema, which practically speaking means either using the appropriate software or converting the data. Using forensic tools to recover details of an author's computing system, in other words, has direct implications for our prospects of successfully accessing this data. Thus, as I have maintained before, a scholar working with born digital materials must needs be conversant in the antiquarian camps of vanished file systems, uh, file formats and data structures, as well as tools like hex viewers and emulators, just as we expect an early modernist doing book history to know the basics of analytical bibliography. Uh, the patron in the reading room with BitCurator open on her laptop is doing nothing different in principle from the person who sets up a portable collator. They are both ways of seeing. So we're now deep into the hour, and at this point I would like to say just a few things about how the kinds of procedures and investigations I've been describing actually map onto uh, bibliographical method as it is conventionally understood, for surely my remarks beg the question of whether I am speaking figuratively or literally when I invoke analytical and descriptive bibliography in relation to Wang word processors. Am I merely positing some analogies, or is there some essential aspect of the bibliographical enterprise that is, in fact, present in research such as my own? Uh, my answer, it will not surprise you, is the latter. At the same time, our understandings of analytical and descriptive bibliography, and in particular their relationship to one another, may shift. Here's why. Computers not only produce text, like typewriters or pens, they also store it and thus they embed the archive within the instrument of its own composition, while also dispersing storage across multiple material supports, ranging from various kinds of magnetic or optical media, as well as hard copy output on paper. Now, while it's true that bibliographical history teaches us that books also embed their own archive, sometimes in truly spectacular fashion, as an example such as the Archimedes palimpsest uh, will demonstrate, I would maintain that there are qualitative differences when we speak of computational media, and indeed fidelity to material truths demands that we acknowledge those differences and not suppress them. The principle of storing data in the same medium and format as the instructions that operate on it is a bedrock principle of computer architecture formally instantiated in the so-called von Neumann model that has dominated computer system design throughout the second half of the 20th century. 
So when we speak of the way in which computers as writing machines operationalize both data creation functions and their storage, we are acknowledging the material specificity of them as humanly engineered artifacts. From a bibliographical standpoint, we see what we might think of as manuscripts and multiples hopelessly intertwined. As many observers have pointed out, there's a very real sense in which there is no such thing as an original when it comes to digital media, not just for reasons of concession to postmodern theory, but also because each and every time a file is accessed, it is in fact duplicated deep in the machinery of the operating system. So every act of computation is in fact a multiplication. In an essay just published in the RBM journal, Doug Reside asks us to consider what rarity means in a digital setting. He concludes that it may have less to do with the singularity of the bitstream per se than the creation and maintenance of the conditions necessary to access it on an ongoing basis. Moreover, as John B. Thompson has shown, um, many of you will know his book, Merchants of Culture, um, today, every published trade book is in fact first and foremost a network of digital assets and artifacts, and only secondarily in derivative fashion, we might say, is it a printed object. Um, those are just the printed object being just one of several channels for its dissemination. So computers, by virtue of their own functionally distinct materialities, really force us to rethink descriptions between manuscripts and multiples with concomitant implications for bibliographical study as well as contemporary publishing practices. Um, I'm going to conclude by um, saying it again. Updike was typical. We don't think of him as a science fiction writer or an author of thrillers or techno-thrillers, someone whose literary beat affords him special stature with regard to technology. But in the midst of his literary career, indeed at its very height, he acquired and began using a word processor. Uh, it was in fact an object of some fascination for him, and it has been, as it has been for other writers as well. I think not just of Stephen King, but of John Barth and Richard Powers. Its output, both hard copy and born digital, are part of the material record of his textual production. The computer coexisted with, but did not replace, his other means of production. Thus, in his papers, we encounter texts in at least three basic states. One, manuscript, either longhand or true typescript. Uh, two, hard copy output derived from digital files. And three, the digital files themselves. Um, in his biography, Adam Begley suggests the Hoden's holdings are a vast paper trowel, possibly the last of its kind, but as we have just seen, even this is not fully accurate. The tripartite textual landscape we have glimpsed will, will be the default for most writers working today, as and indeed it has been already for several decades now. And just what we see here um, obviously, we have a photograph of, um, once again, one of the um, diskettes containing um, drafts of the novel Villages. Um, this is the Hoden's finding aid, and so here we can see the, um, the actual uh, physical um, drafts that are contained within the collection. And here we see some bit curator output 
and again, the prospect of triangulating between what we can forensically recover from the diskettes with what they are labeled as representing with what we have hard copy instances of um, that I think is a kind of uh, illustration of the sort of activity that a textual scholar working on this novel would uh, need to, to undertake. If we desire bibliography as a set of articulated disciplinary practices to say nothing of it as a habit of mind, to remain relevant to the study of authorship, printing, and books, then the tools and methods that I have been describing today or others very much like them will have to become part of what bibliographers know and know how to do. There's a postscript. Some of you may remember that one of Updike's typewriters, an Olivetti um, Electric, was sold at Christie's a few years back. It was purchased by the collector, Steve Soboroff. Um, Steve kindly sent me his Xeroxes of the ribbon, which indisputably dates from early 1983, um, as its various textual remainders, such as an introduction that Updike was then writing to a collection of Kafka's short stories will testify, um, included on the ribbon, though, are three snippets which I want to uh, share with you. This manuscript, um, let's see. This manuscript may be the last messy one you get. I've bought a word processor and we're slowly coming to an understanding. It's quick as the devil, but has very little imagination and no small talk. Uh, that was addressed to Roger and dated um, March 12th, um, quite likely um, his, um, his editor, um, Roger Angel of the, the New Yorker, um, we can assume. Um, and it's also March 12th is the day before the date on the typescript of the poem at the, the Houghton. Next. I'm having a mechanical crisis. This is an electric typewriter. I have a manual and also a word processor. And in going back and forth between them, I keep hitting the wrong keys, but mostly the return button here, which sends the cartridge flying back to goose quill, perhaps. <laughs> uh, that one was to Susan, April 19th. And finally, addressed to his typist on May 23rd, 1983, why don't you charge me $1.25 per page? I have a word processor now and won't be needing too much more typing. And that's the last thing that we can read on the ribbon. Thank you. Um, Happy to take questions if we have time. Yeah. yeah. Um, yes, James. Thank you.
yeah, um, do I have an RBS course for you? Um, you know, of, of course, as you would anticipate, my answer is yes. Um, it, of course it does. Um, I think there are, um, there are more and sort of less interesting sort of scenarios and instances of that. But in general, I mean, I think it's, it's true that, um, you know, if, if we sort of are able to return to this earlier moment of both composition and computation, the early 1980s, um, we find ourselves at a very different place. It's one of the reasons why um, I collect and places like the Media Archaeology Lab at UC Boulder collect, um, RBS collects, um, these kinds of vintage machines. Um, the Wang, as you can see from the Nancy Crampton photograph, you know, is, is pretty recognizable as a computer, a desktop computer as we imagine it today. Um, other machines that were very popular for authors, the, the Osborne one, which is the one that Ralph Ellison bought, um, that was one was also owned by, um, uh, by Anne Rice. Um, several prominent, Michael Chabon, um, several prominent writers. It was a popular machine at the time, got their start on the Osborne one. It had this tiny little screen the size of an index card, an entirely different sort of scene of, of writing than what we might think of today, um, except, of course, for the fact that sometimes nowadays where we're writing on one of these, uh, one of my students this afternoon told me about a friend who was writing her dissertation on her phone using the, <laughs> the swipe technology. So that which is old is, is new again. Um, yeah, Stephanie. Oh. Mm. <laughs> trying to follow that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I suspect what he did was that he, he didn't actually leave spaces between the words as he was composing it. Rather, he hit the period key, which essentially made them one sort of continuous string. And so on his screen, um, in that particular document on his screen, he wouldn't have had occasion to have seen the true sort of floating center points. Um, to just go back to James's question too, you know, if, if it was really sort of vital to me to kind of reconstruct that with absolute certainty, um, one option would be to use a piece of software that we call an emulator. Um, there are emulators that we can use to reproduce sort of the behavior and function of a Wang word processor, and I could sort of retype invalid keystroke myself and, you know, sort of reenact the, the act of composition. Have I done that? No. <laughs> um, yes. Yes. Yes, it can. Um, often it can, not under every circumstance, but um, it's a fairly commonplace thing to do. Yeah. Yes. The files? Mm -hmm. Mm 
Yeah, so um, we haven't, um, we have not, um, and I say we, it's really the, the Hoden at this point, but to my knowledge, they have not actually, we, we've captured those forensic disk images, which allow us to see what the file system, including deleted files, looks like. Um, the next step is to actually open and access those files. And to my knowledge, um, that has not yet been, been done. Um, so at this point, all we see is the metadata. We can see what the different sort of drops are and their date and timestamps, but we, we haven't actually looked at them. Um, to, in order, there are tools to, to do that. Um, the Word documents are going to be easy. Um, I'm not sure how much conversion would be involved with Lotus AmiPro. Um, if we did have the five and a quarter inch Wang diskettes, that would be even tougher. Um, yeah, it's a much older sort of um, yeah, format. Um, but, you know, we could also, um, again, using things like emulators, at least reconstruct a kind of approximation of the original environment. Yeah. Other questions? Uh, Michael. Yeah, it's an interesting question, and we know that, you know, that too has long-standing precedent. If we think about the, you know, the legend always was that there was a Hendon collator at Langley with the uh, CIA. Um, I, you know, in some ways, the, the bit curator environment as a project um, funded, I should mention, too, by the Mellon Foundation very generously. Um, bit curator is in some ways a step away from that because thus far, the archives and cultural heritage and the scholarly community have been um, sort of relying on these very high-end, and obviously in many cases, you know, we ultimately don't know what capabilities various scary government agencies do or don't have. Um, but um, the Bit Curator Project is really um, about presenting a kind of alternative to relying on, you know, that sort of technology falling off the end of the apple cart model. Um, these are tools that originate in the open source community. Uh, they're being packaged by us in ways that are conducive to the needs of archivists as opposed to law enforcement personnel. And so um, being able to provide patron access, not something that one finds in a typical law enforcement scenario, is something that's important to us with, with BitCurator. Um, so I'm hopeful, in fact, that the scholarly world will, in some degree, become less dependent on those technologies and more self-sufficient. Um, Harry? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I think the sort of takeaway from it is that these ultimately aren't absolutist categories. Um, one example that comes to mind is uh, about a year ago, a year and a half ago, uh, there was a vintage computer games exhibition at the Smithsonian. And if you went to um, visit it, um, you would they, they were, in fact, running um, all manner of vintage classic video games on the original hardware, except for the projection systems, which were kind of you know, large format displays, contemporary projection technology suitable for, you know, large, you know, rooms, rooms full of people. And so, you know, that's very much a kind of hybrid approach. And what you would miss, I mean, a, a purist would tell you that at that point, the, the particular flicker of an early 1980s TV set and the behavior as the cathode ray gun was sort of tracing lines back and across the screen, all of that sort of, you know, disappears in the course of the projection. So I think when we talk about these different approaches, they are often in practice uh, blended more than we may sometimes acknowledge. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, there's also, you know, when one does this kind of restoration of vintage machines, you know, it's not unusual to talk to an engineer, and if you need a particular part, you ask the engineer, and she'll say, oh, well, we can just make that, right? And so there, too, you have an instance where you have old and new being functionally integrated. Thank you. Thank you.